Blog Talk Radio. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You already know what time it is. It's that official time. When we take this worldwide. Let's go. So now it's time to turn it up Surf the radio waves as we begin to burn it up We all up in your area like landscape Definitely bringing you the power slamming pancakes It's a mandate that you tune in It's time to move out so we can move in And recognize that this is no illusion I'm here to clear the air so that there is no confusion It all started off in the book of Genesis When Jacob was wrestling with who he thought was his nemesis And when the man saw he couldn't overpower him He touched his hip but he really could have devoured him and from that point, then we hear a name change, rearrange the game, so now we gotta change lanes. Uh, so I'm here to let you know it's time to listen to the Pancake and Power Slam show. Let's go! Turn it up, turn it up, it's the Pancake and Power Slam. Turn it up, turn it up, it's the Pancake and Power Slam. Turn it up, turn it up, it's the Pancake and Power Slam show. Uh. Pancakes and Power Slam shows, ladies and gentlemen. Without all the uh, glitching and everything else, we are here. We are live and living Kelligan funky like a monkey, if you will. You know what? We're just going to have a panel discussion. There's some things going on uh, and some glitches. We'll uh, just worry about that later. We'll have a panel discussion. We'll uh, have uh, uh, our awesome, awesome we might have a little surprise uh, later on tonight. So uh, we're going to have, of course, Derek and our senior analyst slash live event correspondent, Ryan. Derek and Ryan, how are y'all doing tonight? Hey, what's going on, guys? I'm good. Hello. Derek. This is the Pancakes and Power Slams. We're going on live. This is it. This is the Tuesday night that everybody's been waiting for. We're going live. What have you got for us tonight, Chris? We got some 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 Roman Reigns and 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 interestingly enough, it seems as if Roman Reigns and Bray Wyatt is not done yet, and that's uh, it's very interesting. So we're going to project that, and then we're going to talk about uh, notable. Fun and notable, uh, 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 very, very uh, memorable and legendary uh, belt designs. That's our Flavor of the Week topic. But first, we're going to get into trivia. First question of the night is, what, what, what promotion did Bill Watts own? What promotion did Bill Watts own so uh, that uh, should be very very fun so uh well we're going to uh we're going to get to raw here start off with raw uh we first get a uh, a fun handy dandy uh match with the John Cena open challenge is back and in, in, in session 
and accepted by my boy, uh, one third of my boys, <laughs> Xavier Woods, and I'm not talking about Dalton Castle uh, and his boys. Uh, New Day attacks uh, uh, Cena during the match. Dudley's make the save, change to a six-man tag, and then the New Day eventually uh, defeats uh, John Cena and Dudley's. The only thing this says to me is that, you know, the Dudley boys uh, are um, getting to that. So they're, they're getting there, and they're getting uh, uh, there. So we'll be right back. You are now listening to the Pancakes and Power Slam Show by Crave Wrestling. On Blog Talk Radio. Be sure to follow Crave Wrestling on Twitter at Crave Wrestling and join the Facebook fan page Crave Wrestling. All righty, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we got some uh, we got some good news going on. It looks like the uh, the, the glitch is uh, um, all working out. Um, so we should be good to go uh with with uh the the, the legend so uh we are waiting we are waiting uh while we while we await uh, Greg Gagne here uh just it, it's 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 interesting and we're going to talk about more raw here in a minute but uh uh just just AWA and, and just look, looking at looking at uh uh old clips i was just watching cwa uh yesterday and i've and i've told many people that uh i've watched uh, cwa uh on many occasions uh and it's just uh, very very fun and very very uh interesting uh to to, to to just go back, you know, when I was a little kid, you know, in the 80s, and it was just, you know, really, really awesome to to uh, experience uh, just just going back and, and, and witnessing that myself. So, uh, and I, I've watched uh, many, I, I mean, I, I grew up watching AWA, kid, and uh, uh, when it was on ESPN and just the, the whole thing about just, AWE not necessarily being, you know, uh, in, in the 90s, just as far as the comparison is concerned, uh, and we'll talk about that here soon, um, but it, it was just, it was still an amazing uh, federation to, to, to watch and being on ESPN. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the AWA legend is here. And live, Greg Gagne. Yeah. How are you tonight, sir? Man, guys, I sure apologize. And I, I made sure I charged my phone up. I put it down, lay down on the couch, and <laughs> I just woke up. I really apologize. <laughs> no worries, man. Gosh. No worries. Sorry, <laughs> Thank man. Thank you so much for your time. It's yeah. it's, it's totally oh, fine. God. Uh, we're gonna have some fun though. Uh, so you know what's so funny, uh, Greg? I was thinking about I was thinking about how uh, you were in, you were in your mid twenties when you started uh, wrestling for for your father, right? Yes, I was. I played uh, mm-hmm. football at, uh, first at Minnesota, then transferred out to Wyoming, where I finished up my career and had an opportunity to sign with the Atlanta Falcons as a free agent. And uh, I left school in November, and, and uh, my dad said, well, if you want to get in shape, you better train with this Billy Robinson, English wrestler who was a great submission wrestler, a great uh, technician, not only in the ring, but he had a great uh, workout ethic about him and was going to get me in shape for this training camp coming up. 
and so I'd work out with them two to three hours a day, uh, five days a week. And uh, all the wrestling I was doing with them, I started liking it better. Came to my dad one day and I said, hey, I think I want to wrestle. He said, what makes you think you can wrestle? I said, well, <laughs> I've been working out with Billy. I think I've been learning a lot. He says, well, you might not be big enough. And I said, well, you know, give me a shot. So uh, he was uh, at the time sponsoring Ken Patera, who was uh, at that time the first man to press 500 pounds on, over his head. And when Ken got done with the Olympics in September in Germany, in Munich, uh, he was going to have a training camp. So he invited myself. He met Kazro Vasiri, uh, the Iron Sheik, uh, who was a bodyguard for the Shah and an amateur wrestler in Iran. Um, wanted to be a professional wrestler, too, so he brought him. Uh, Wahoo McDaniels recommended a guy named Bob Bruggers, who was playing with the San Diego Chargers at the time and finished up. And then I called my old uh, partner, Jim Brunzel, and I said, Jim, I think, you know, you know, he's playing, you're playing semi-pro baseball football. You're not making any money. Why don't you try wrestling? He was like, kind of like me at first. Well, you know what? I'm a good athlete, but I've never wrestled. I said, well, we're going to learn a lot. And then uh, another fellow that we uh, went to college with and became a real close friend, actually before we went to college, was uh, Rick Flair. And I called Rick, and Rick came to the camp too. And Rick came in at 297 pounds, and, and Patera was 340, and we did six hours a day, six days a week. And uh, Rick got down to about 245, and Patera down to about 310. And uh, it was, it was uh, we had 100 guys try out with us the first day, and uh, by the end of the day, there was only the six of us left. It was, it was tough, tough camp, and uh, they really prepared us. My father was great at preparing people to go into professional wrestling. Over the years, we counted, he had trained probably 144 wrestlers, that 98% of them were all main eventers. So he had, yeah. a, at, at that time, there was only three guys that did the training around the country. That was Vern. Uh, Dory Funk Sr. and Eddie Graham. They were the three that were really producing more talent than anybody else. Stuart had a few up in his camp, but uh, he didn't put out the numbers that the other three did. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's uh, that's how I got into it. It made uh-huh. me, uh, first, uh, actually, Patera, Flair, uh, Brunzel, Vasiri, and Bruggers all started about six months before I did. Uh-huh. So my father wanted to make sure I was prepared because uh, he knew there'd be guys who would take shots at me that wanted to get to him and couldn't. And uh, they made me haul the ring truck and referee and, you know, learn the whole business from the bottom up. And, uh, mm-hmm. and by the time we got in there, I don't think we we're, we're really uh, afraid to step in the ring with anybody. We had really learned how to handle ourselves. Nice. Yeah, so it's very interesting because I was I spoke. Well, with, I hope you know, it I is. With, yeah, <laughs> it's interesting because I spoke with Jim a couple of weeks ago, and uh-huh. uh, you know he was he was letting me know about uh, you know his 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 football career and uh, we talked mm-hmm. about the the the, uh, the Gophers actually and uh, we talked a little bit about Jerry Kill as well. Are you are, are you a mm-hmm. Vikings or Gophers fan? Neither or both. I'm both. Uh, I'm actually. I, I, you know, I, I support our local teams here. I love the Gophers. I want them to succeed. My father went there. I went there for a year and a half, but I still love Minnesota football and Minnesota sports. Um, but I grew up at a time when we didn't have the Vikings. And uh, every Sunday we got the Green Bay Packers with old Ray Scott or Hal Scott, Ray Scott, 
uh, doing the the commentary, and I became a huge Packer fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, but so I, I I support both teams, the Packers oh. and the Vikings. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge Titans fan. I, I, so. I like what the yeah the, the the Packers they have such great they've had such great quarterbacks with Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers and I played quarterback and and you know those guys were phenomenal when Favre came here then I was you know all over it. But yeah, um, yeah. I'm I'm a fan of both of both and and definitely the college I'm always pulling for Minnesota here and supporting them. Yeah, I'm I, like I told uh, like I told Jim I, I'm more of a uh, I mean you know I'm I'm rooting for them because of you know I'm so big I'm so pro Big Ten so I'm a huge Ohio State uh-huh. fan from Ohio. So, uh, well, yeah, I would just say, I, you, how could you be a Minnesota fan being in Ohio? My God, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, I mean, just, just the Big Ten. I mean, uh, with, with the exception of Michigan, you know, I, I, yeah, exactly. I, I root for just about everyone. I, I'm still, I, I still have my moments where I prefer Michigan State to win a game, but it's still. Uh, it's not. Uh, mo- I still kind of you know grin when they lose, <laughs> but you know yeah. it, I, I still have that type of feeling that definitely not as strong as as uh, th- those boys in Ann Arbor. So uh, yeah, well, you know I'm I'm with you. I, I love the Big Ten, and uh, you know I get tired of listening about the SEC all the time and how yeah. strong they are, and they got so many teams in the top twenty-five, and that the Big Ten doesn't play anybody. Well, I mean, Alabama played Monroe, Louisiana Monroe. The yeah, other day. Louisiana I mean, Monroe. I looked yeah. at the games last week. There was they weren't playing anybody. They don't say anything about those games. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, and it's so funny because the, the the number one and number two in the country right now are Big Ten teams. So I'll speak mm-hmm. Michigan State. So yeah. you know that should be a, when those two when those two meet that. Uh, I think if anybody can maybe knock off Ohio State, um, is Michigan State. And I think it all comes down to, you know, how those two quarterbacks at Ohio State are going to – how this thing's going to really end up here at the end of the year. Who's going to be in there? Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely. just my thought on it. Yeah. What do you absolutely. think? You're an old well, you're a Buckeye I mean, fan. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think – I kind of think that we're getting the – we're starting to become the Florida State, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, we're kind of skating. Yeah. Florida State for the past couple of years kind of skating by, you know, to, to their number one spot. I mean, you know, they went a couple of years without, mm-hmm. you know, losing. But I don't want to be that. You know, Ohio State is more – Ohio State has looked at more as being the underdogs. And when we won the mm-hmm. national championship, you know, uh, over a dozen years ago, a dozen, dozen years ago now with, uh, with Trestle, so mm-hmm. we were we were number two, you know. It, we, the, Miami was an unstoppable force, and you know they went. You know, the Coker was just an, an amazing coach, and we were we were two. I mean, just like mm-hmm. just like last year, we you know we were underdogs, and and we want. I, I prefer to have that type of underdog feel. It's so funny the coach uh, for um, the team we played uh, last week, uh, which was uh, Western Michigan. Uh, the, their coach, their coach said that Ohio State has never won a national championship starting as number one. And as much mm-hmm. as a research buff, and I mean, I've, I've written for, I've written Ohio State articles for the Bleacher Report, and as much as a research buff I am, as as far as Ohio State football, 
that was an interesting stat. I've never, I never mm-hmm. really kind of knew that and, and, and kind of really thought about that. So now it's yeah. another, now it's another challenge, which I like and I accept, but we can't get to that comfort you know that a lot of people, and number one, you know they they have they they get comfortable, mm-hmm. and, you know, and they get to the point where they don't play to their they don't play to their potential because it's kind of like all or it, it, there's not that really all or nothing. Uh, they, we have nothing to lose. Feel like you do when you're mm-hmm. you're, you're, the, you're the underdog. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I I don't think our schedule's uh, very strong, so I think we'll have a better chance of being in the playoffs. But it, it should be interesting. Yeah, it should. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Jim and myself as a tag team. We were kind of always the underdogs, mm-hmm. and we we liked that role. We found it challenging, and um, uh, it made us want to go out there and and uh, have the the best match we possibly could every every night and have the best match on the card. And yeah, it was let's just, talk about uh, that a little bit. You know, uh, the high flyers. I, I think any, yeah, well, I think any athletes like that, you know, when they're an underdog, um, and, and just refer back, before we go back to the wrestling with Jerry Kill, watching him recruit and the other coaches that have come in here, the other coaches, uh, Brewster and the rest of them, they all tried to mm-hmm. get these number fives you know, and they're going to go to the Alabamas and the Floridas and the and the, the, the Miamis and the Ohio States and Michigan State and Southern Cal, and you're not going to get them. And Jerry's mm-hmm. philosophy is he's been getting all these number threes, and he'll get 15 or 20 of them. And they're kids that feel like they're underdogs, and they were slighted by the big schools, mm-hmm. the real big ones, the big major football schools, and they want to prove themselves. And they work very hard. And he's got a bunch of really hard-working kids. He's got a great defense over there. Uh, whether the offense can do it, I don't know. But that's yeah. kind of where Jim and I, uh, you know, they put us up against some teams that we're, everybody thought, and we probably we probably were overmatched with them. Um, but uh, we we had a we had a style, and and we were in such good shape that if we could dictate the pace, we could generally wear our opponents down pretty good and. We'd have some longer matches than normal, I guess, you know, you know, 20 to 40 minutes. But uh, that's how we were able to uh, to compete with the bigger teams. Yeah. Bear them out. Yep. Go for the legs. <laughs> so that was so that was uh, mainly the mid 80s when y'all were real big in the NWA, if not mistaken. Y'all, y'all won the titles around that time, right? Uh, we won actually in 1978 was our first uh, the first shot we had, and mm-hmm. I started in 75. So you know, three years in, uh, you know, usually like any sport uh, today, the, the athletes are are prepared a little bit better. Uh, but you know, back in our time, it took you five years when you got in the pros before you really excelled, and it was the same thing you know in our sport and in baseball and everything else, but. Um, I was lucky to grow up in it and caught on a lot quicker than, than most and kind of had it in my blood. And uh, Jim and I just, we really gelled. We were good friends, and we didn't care about anything but having a, a great match or the great best match on the card, and that's what we worked for every night. And um, I think we, we, I know we surprised a lot of people. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Who would you say the toughest team, just as far as just shoot style, 
brawling. What was the toughest team that you that you witnessed uh, wrestling in, in the AWA with? with and, you, you know, everybody had a different style. So uh, there were some wrestlers like um, uh, Billy Robinson, great technician in the ring, but he couldn't adapt to other people's style and he'd get frustrated and he mm-hmm. and he was a great great technician a great wrestler but he would lose his cool sometimes and forget what he was doing and once you did that let your defense down people opened up on you uh you know we had some of our probably some of the greatest matches we had were with ray stevens and nick Bockwinkle, or ray stevens and pat patterson or bobby heenan and bobby duncan jack lands of bobby duncan uh, Mad Dog Vachon and, and Baron Von Raschke, which uh, they were two, that was a totally different style. I mean, Mad Dog was unpredictable. And uh, as long as we were in competition with the guys that were had backgrounds in wrestling, we usually did you know pretty well with them because of the background that Vern gave us. Uh, the Road Warriors, we had matches with them, and I ran into Joe Laurinaitis one day, and he said, you know, he said, I, I've never said this to anybody, but I'm going to tell you. Um, we didn't know or didn't respect how good you guys really were. Mm. And that was pretty good. That was probably one of the better compliments I ever got for somebody. You know, they'd go in the ring in 10 minutes. You took a you took a kicking. Uh, they would just hammer on you. But we realized that if you stayed close enough to the ropes and they got, once they got blown up, what we call it, and their muscles wouldn't, uh, they could barely hang on to you. We'd take them down. And I had Joe and an Indian Deathlock up in Winnipeg, and he kept saying to me, I'm going to kill you. And I said, well, you're not going to get out of here to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and his legs were so big. I mean, they were ready to break, so he couldn't do a whole lot. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it was, it was the techniques and the style and the great coaching that we had from Billy and Vern that, that gave us, you know, kind of a, a little edge on a lot of those guys that didn't have the, the training and the background that we had. Uh, Adrian Adonis and Jesse Ventura, you know, for a year, promoters wanted that match in every arena. Every, we get so tired of wrestling them. Uh, Jesse was not very good in the ring. Adrian was an unbelievable technician and probably one of the best that ever been in the ring with. And he always carried the load for that team. Uh, but they were, they were different enough as a team that they were, uh, it was a pretty. It was a very competitive match, and something that the the fans just came out and droves to see it. So um, promoters wanted it. <laughs> we didn't yeah, want to do it every night, but we were doing it. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it, it, it's hard to say. You know, Jerry Jerry Blackwell was another one, 450 pounds. And uh, I remember the first time I wrestled in my single match. We were in Rockford, Illinois. At a high school gym, it seated about 4,000 people, and it was, you know, early August, and the place was full, and they had those, floor, floor, those, you know, the, the basketball lights, <laughs> Jesus, mm-hmm. and it was hot in there, and I'm in the dressing room, and I said, 15 minutes, I'll be back in here. I'm going to wear this guy out. 45 minutes later, I'm still in the ring with the guy. I'm dying, but uh, he was so big, I couldn't get him to wrestle my pace, he made me wrestle his, and putting all that weight on you, man, it was it was a grind. They're kind of laughing when I got back in the locker room. Yeah. So yeah. you know, it, it's really hard to say. There was so much great, the best talent in all of wrestling was in the AWA. 
from 1960 to, you know, 1985 before McMahon started stealing everybody's talent. Uh, uh, there was no place better in the, in the United States or in the world to, to wrestle. And that's why all the good talent came in there. We didn't go every night of the week like they did in North Carolina and Florida and, and New York where they were, you know, 365 days a year and sometimes double shots on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, we wrestled about 200, maybe 250 times. We got the whole month of May off in the first two weeks in June. And it was really important at Ver, with Vern that his talent had the opportunity to spend time with their families. Mm-hmm. So it was yeah, a great place to, to work. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's that's awesome. And we'll we'll you know remember that uh, that that Vince uh, uh, quote that you uh, statement that you had uh, as far as uh, him stealing talent. We'll we'll talk about that that in a minute. And, and certainly, excuse me, I meant to say mid seventies is when the uh, the High Flyers won, yeah. won the uh, yeah it was the, the mid seventies uh, to you know about eighty yeah. eighty three and then uh, then uh, things started happening and, and I think it was eighty four eighty five when Jim. Uh, Decided he he needed to go to the WWE at that time. So mm-hmm. nothing against him. He was trying to provide for his family, and he thought that was the best place to be. Now, as far as you were concerned, you were like, "Oh, I'm not budging. You know, I'm sticking with the AWA." Was uh, was it was it like that, or was it you know kind of? Mm-hmm. Did you ever think about? Because I know that you guys had some. Kind of cross promoting time at uh, around the mid '80s too, right? You you had a you had a few matches in the WWE, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I I did in the '70s and '80s. In fact, that's where I I wrestled in. Uh, God, what was it? '78, I think, in Shea Stadium when when Hulk wrestled Andre, mm-hmm. and um, and Larry Zabisco wrestled uh, Bruno San Martino, and I was on the card that night and. Stayed at the same hotel where Hogan was, and I went out with some friends afterwards. I came back, and Hogan had a horrible match with Andre that night. He's sitting on the floor, and I said, hey, big man, what's the matter? He said, I can't make it in wrestling. I said, well, I think you can. I, I mean, you have a lot of potential, but you need you need a lot of work. I said, why don't you why don't you uh, give my father a call, I'll tell him we met, and come on in and give it a shot in the AWA. Uh, you know, it's got unbelievable talent there, and and, uh, you know, Jim and I, we'd be more than happy to work with you. And uh, about three months later, he called Vern. And Vern said, what do you think of this guy? So I think he's the next big superstar, really. But I said, he needs a lot of work. So Vern brought him in, and he worked with him on his interviews and his personality and who he really was. You know, they, they were trying to make him a bad guy up in uh, New York, and that isn't really who he was. Deep down, he was a pretty good guy. And then we put him in six-man tag matches with Jim and I, and we'd only let him in the ring when we had control, and you know, we'd tell him what to do. You know, grab an arm, spin on it, drop a leg on it, tag out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and only yeah, let him the in there maker. when. Yeah, and only let him in there when. Uh, uh, you know, we know he he would really shine, and then uh, yeah. he cut on to the flow of a match and and the. Uh, and the whole thing and who he was and, uh, you know, the rest, I guess, is history. Now, there's a running story about, um, you know, and we, I, I know I've, 183 episodes that I've had here in the past three and a half years, I've talked about it and I've, uh, you know, heard and, and seen documentaries and, and different interviews of many other people talking about it. 
Now, there's a there's a running story of you know Hogan and and, and your and Vern having kind of kind of being at odds with each other over some merch some, some merchandise in Japan, and one of the reasons why Hogan left. And no, and it wasn't. You know, is that true or no? It it wasn't merchandise in Japan. It was some of the merchandising that was that. Uh, in fact, my brother-in-law and a good friend of mine, they started the merchandise with just the T-shirts and stuff. And wrestlers all got their cuts. I mean, and there was everything. Some of the guys thought there was more than there should have been. Jesse thought he had all this money coming to him, and we had sold. They sold, I think, six T-shirts of his. You know. So, and then in the Japan thing. Um, my father had a, a, a contract with Giant Baba, and that's who he sent all his talent to. Hogan, when he worked for the WWE, they hooked him up with Hinoki, which was the competition to Baba. So Hogan felt very strong that he should have been the champion, and... Um, which he probably would have been at some point. There was some point coming up where he probably would have been. But uh, he was working for Hinoki, so that couldn't happen because of the deal we had with, with Baba. And uh, so that's that's kind of how that thing all came apart. Okay. So it wasn't a matter of, of Vern, you know, keeping the money with the... No, the God, no. He didn't even have okay. control of the money. It was... It was it was the guys that were selling it. There was three of them, and they were they were very honest people. And and uh, um, I always knew what was going on. I knew what the count was. I knew what the guys were getting. They were getting their percentage. You know, mm. uh, Hogan wanted more. Uh, you know, and rightfully so. He should have probably got more. But when he first came in there, he didn't mean anything. You know, Vern made him a star. We made him a star. So um, once he once he achieved that. Um, we probably could have renegotiated that and probably would have. Uh, we had had a match in St. Paul in, uh, we always had Andre come in in October, in the fall. Uh, September was a slow month. Kids are going back to school. October wrestling got red hot in the, in the Midwest till the end of April. So they bring Andre in for a month and we ran battle Royals all around, all around every, every major city and some small towns. So we were working every night. And then the winner always got uh, the champion at Thanksgiving, and uh, and then we and there was a there was a spot in the match in the Battle Royal in St. Paul. Uh, there was I don't know there was probably twenty guys in the ring and it, it was maybe down to maybe five or six left in the ring, and Hogan and Andre kind of bumped into each other, and they were both crowd favorites, and when they did they kind of turned and looked at each other. And the reaction, I don't think either one of them knew what to do. And the people went dead silent. And Vern said, oh, my God, here's the match right here, Hogan and and, and uh, Andre. So he proceeded to call uh, Vince Sr., who was booking Andre and, had a, or, uh, Andre and uh, at that time and uh, had him under contract. And he said, Vince, what I'd like to do I want to bring Andre here in February, and I'm going to run him around all our major cities against Hogan. So he gave us Andre. So it comes down to now, right after Thanksgiving, Hogan takes off for Japan. 
our last match, our last battle royal was in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, I was right there with him and a couple other, and Vern and Hogan, and he laid out the plans and where we were going with him and him and Andre in February, and he was all excited about it. And little did he know, and only Vern and I knew about it, CBS had come to us, and in April they wanted to do a big live TV show, and that's when we were going to do Hogan and Bachwinkle. But we didn't tell Hogan about it. Vern never told anybody what he was thinking because then it would get out and notice what we called the dirt sheets. <laughs> and everybody in the world knew what you were doing, and he didn't like that. He wanted to keep everybody off balance. So uh, Hogan was all excited about it. We didn't tell him about after February where we were going with it in April, but told him up till then. And he got on a plane and went to Japan. He came back, and Christmas week was a big week for us. We had... St. Paul sold out, uh, San Francisco, Chicago, Milwaukee, Winnipeg, Milwaukee, uh, you know, all our all our major cities. And Hogan was in, in the main event, uh, mostly in six-man tags, Jim and I. And uh, about the 20, it was about the 19th or 20th of December, we got this letter from Tampa, Florida. And it said, I will not be coming back. Well, my dad and Eddie Graham, Eddie was the promoter in Florida. They used to play jokes on each other all the time. So my dad thought it was Eddie Graham sending this to him and didn't even believe it. So we get to, we get to St. Paul on Christmas night, and Hogan doesn't show up. And I called him up, and I said, Hulkster, what's going on? Well, I'm going to go to New York. And I said, well, he said, didn't you get the telegram? All the telegram said, and I said, Vern thought it was from Eddie Graham. That you you weren't coming back, but you had an agreement with us up through February. I said, you know what? Here's the deal: if you want to go to New York, do do what everybody does or has done in this profession from years past: fulfill all your commitments, go through Christmas week, and if you want to go, then go. Well, Vince is paying me more money not to show up for the matches. That's what he said to me. So that was it. Wow. So we never got Andre in February. We never had Hogan in February. That's when McMahon and Junior took over. And it was funny because Vince Junior had come into us way back in June and wanted to know if he could buy Vern and, and uh, Vern out. He said, well, you know, I, the problem with us, we've got partners in every city. We've got Gene Reed in, in Denver. we got Dennis Hilgard in Chicago and Milwaukee, and it's Wally and I, and we've got partners in Winnipeg and you know we get partners in in Wilbur and uh, Wilbur Snyder and Dick Bruiser in Chicago it's not that easy but it'll take us some time so he came back in office in August and uh, we had we had talked to him in general about you know the direction of wrestling and uh you know it would be more it would be ideal for uh you know to 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 have one organization really and have the whole country because then you can instead of bartering your time with the TV stations you can now be like major TV shows and get paid for TV. Yeah. So he had a you know he had a good thought there and we had actually done the first pay per view ever in wrestling we did it out in Milwaukee just locally there but it was a pay per view so we told him how we did that. And then he came back in August, and Vern said, you know, I think I can uh, put it together, and this is the number. And Vince said, okay. 
And we drove him to the airport. And as he got out and we dropped him off, he turned and he yelled out to us, I don't negotiate. Fern said to me, what did he say? I said, he said he doesn't negotiate. I said, so what does he mean by that? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and then we never heard from him again. Wow. And that was in August. And then everything hit the fan, uh, you know, right at the at Christmas time there. So. And just a few that's years of, that's, later. That's the uh, real story on how it went down. Yeah, and he, yeah, yeah, and and I was I was I was asked by both Hogan and and Gene Okerlund, uh had called me and said uh, you know Jim's up here now why don't you come up here and be his partner and I said I said geez you know you guys all walked out on Vern I'm just flesh and blood I wouldn't walk out on my father and yeah. I wouldn't expect uh, would you want your kid to walk out on you Gene you know I said I can't do that so. You know, looking back, uh, you know, I wish I could have convinced Fern that we should have tried to, that we couldn't fight the money that McMahon had behind him or whatever he had behind him and what he was trying to do. But, uh, you know, he, Vern was a competitor, and, and he he never lost much, uh, both as an amateur and as a pro, and he wasn't going to lose this battle, but uh, he just ran out of money. And uh, I, I, looking back, I, you know, I wish I could have convinced him of it, and I wish I could have gone, gone up there and had a run, because uh, I think I look back now, and and you know, the people up there, they were all good, uh, good athletes in the ring, great entertainers, uh, some classic people that they had up there. They had all the big names, and I would have liked to have just seen where I fit in with that. Yeah. And, uh, I think Jim and I would have had some success. I know we would have. But yeah, the interesting part of that, though, is, the, the interesting part about that, though, is that Brunzel was, I mean, the the, the Killer Bees. I remember I was a kid in, in the 80s. Uh, I, I remember the, the Killer Bees vividly. But they never mm-hmm. won a tag title. For mm-hmm. some reason, for some reason, they didn't put the straps on them. Do you think that if you were Brian Blair in that in that case, would you think that Vince would give you the same treatment? I don't have any idea. You know, I I I, w- I would like to think that Jim and I were so established. See, Brian Blair came out of Florida. You know, and they just ran basically Florida. Mm-hmm. We were established from Winnipeg to St. Louis all the way to the West Coast. So for McMahon, we would have meant more as a team to him than Brian Blair and Jim did. I mean, that's me as looking at it from their side of it and me as a promoter and knowing, you know, the major cities they needed from the AWA, they needed Chicago, they needed uh, St. Paul, they needed Milwaukee, they needed Green Bay, uh, Winnipeg, Denver, San Francisco, uh, Las Vegas, Phoenix, Oakland. They needed those cities, and that's where we were really established. So we would have meant more for him moving forward than Brian Blair and Jim did. I, I mean, that's the way I look at it, and I'm trying to look at it uh, from a business point and as a promoter, you know, yeah. what would be best. Yeah, I can see that. I, I can see that, you know, especially if, especially if you, the both of you kept the High Flyers name, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 
there's more money in that because the people know who the high flyers are as opposed to the killer bees bringing right. a brand new fresh team that right. was you know you might, individual yeah. events. I can see that. Right. It's it's a fresh team and, and uh you know, they got they got established. I think they did well together. Uh Brian's yeah. a great uh great in the ring. Um but I think that was kind of the you know, when you go into Denver and you go into Chicago and now they're going with Brian Blair and Jim Brunzel and it was Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel and the high flyers that were established there. You know, the fans that they were trying to turn over I still still think had that feeling more so for us than they did Jim and Brian in those cities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, when the like exodus happened, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I can, like I said, I can see that as well. Uh, when the exodus happened, you know, around that time that you're saying with, you know, with a bunch of people going to New York, um, you decided to, you know, the AWA decided to make people like, you know, Rick Martell, you know, top baby faces. How did mm-hmm. that come about, and why you know why people like Martel, who you know is a is I've you know followed Martel you know since you know the early eighties and and mm-hmm. you know a, a solid wrestler from from my perspective a solid wrestler, but it, it just didn't seem like he was really over enough to just thrust him into that top babyface position. What how did that come about? Well, Vern always had a little booking committee. Uh, uh, myself, Wally Carbo, uh, Nick Bockwinkle, Jack Lanza, Bobby Heenan. And Lanza and Bockwinkle convinced Fern that Martell was the way to go. Hmm. And um, I didn't really say too much about it. Um you know, they pushed for it. Nick was the champion. Um, I wrestled, or Jim and I wrestled Rick and Tito, a few uh, Tito Santana and some matches that we had unbelievable matches with them. But there were, Rick was a great performer in the ring, but there was something to me, uh, and I'm not, believe me when I say this, I'm not braying about us or anything, I'm just saying it as looking on the outside out. He he didn't, there was some charisma, there was some spark missing that the, the people in the AWA didn't quite quite jump on the bandwagon with. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think in the, hindsight, just about everybody thinks about that, uh, thinks of that that way. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I think, I, you know, I, I always think about it. I mean, that's why I brought it up. I mean, there's so much other mm-hmm. stuff to bring up, but I just really wanted to know that from your perspective. What was it about Rick Martell, and again, you know, not to take anything away from his ability because he did very well when he went with Vince and the arrogance and, you know, even strike force and uh, and mm-hmm. so forth, but especially the, the model gimmick, the, it went very well. But just I just didn't know what was it at that time, you know, in mid-'80s, that they that, – that, what was it about Martell that was – uh, not I, to say, yeah, I that, don't know. that's the guy. I, him, you know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, I tell you, that's the way it was. I mean, Vern was, you know, he was more, uh, he was battling so hard, and and uh, uh, he was also he had a, a place he had built on on uh, Lake here in, in 
Minnetonke. He had 58 acres. Uh, he was battling the the uh, Minnetrista, the, the city of Minnetrista, who wanted to condemn, they condemned his property. And he was battling that and battling McMahon. And uh, he was... He was listening to people that I didn't feel were giving him the best advice. Uh, there was a promoter that we had in Milwaukee, Dennis Hilgard, and Dennis had a great feel for the for the business. And he would, and Vern would usually listen to him, but uh, there was one time Dennis wanted to push for something in, in Milwaukee. Um, that Vern didn't go for. And after that, you know, Dennis wasn't pushing for Martel. Mm. Um, uh, that's all I'll say on the thing because I don't want to, yeah. you know, um, yeah. say what was really on everybody's mind there and what sh- probably should have been done. Uh, it did... It hurt the town in Milwaukee when when Vern didn't listen to 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 Dennis, and it was uh, it was just it was a match with Bachwinkle and I, and Vern was in the corner, and Dennis wanted to uh, make sure there was a title change that night, and but Vic, Nick had to be in Japan the following week to defend the title, so Vern put the Knicks on it, and then when he got back, uh, um, Nick convinced him that Martel was this you know. Good for the good for the territory, but um, it didn't turn out as well as some people thought it would. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have been there interesting to see him be, you know, the the guy, the charismatic guy, and then somehow he would have, mm-hmm. you know, com- you know, propelled from that from a babyface standpoint. I mean, like I said, he did mm-hmm. propel from a heel standpoint, but just not necessarily from a babyface standpoint. But no, you um, know, it, 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 it's funny about that. Uh, it's it, it's really. Funny, Chris, because um, some some guys just have the charisma that the people get into, and other guys that some promoters at that time, or even now, I watch some some of the people that the WWE pushes, and they fall flat on their face because it's something about them that the people don't buy. Yeah. And, and I think it comes down to, and, and, and Rick, in his defense, he did have that heavy French accent. And uh, I don't think the people really got into him um, as a champion and didn't get behind him because, you know, my dad used to tell us, when you're doing an interview, you talk from the heart. You know, you, uh, how do you talk if you're going into your football game or doing an interview about your football game? You got a Big Ten game coming up. You're playing Ohio State. You're the starting quarterback, and they want to interview you. How do you talk? You talk about what you want to accomplish, how you want accomplishment, accomplish it, and then people either like what you say or they dislike what you say on the way you say it. And the interview back in those days was the key to getting yourself established. And then in the ring, being able to get the emotion from the fans to either get on your side or to hate you. And if you could get that, you could draw money. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, I maybe it was because I mean Jim was you know 225 pounds, I was slighter, and um, but people bought into us. Uh, they liked our style. Uh, we got we got their emotions running high, and they would come to see us. And why that is, you know, I think just because of those things. Some people can get that from the audience, and some can't. And when I watched the WWE now, and I was up there with McMahon, uh, I trained some of their people. I worked uh, um, in Louisville for six months and in Atlanta, and I'd go, you know, down there every week. And in six months, had seventeen of them, seventeen wrestlers ready for them to bring up. And uh, prior to that, they'd get maybe one, maybe two, uh, every six months. And then they told me I was teaching them to drop kick the wrong way. Uh, but again, you have you have people. People within the business that don't really know what makes it work, pushing people that probably shouldn't be pushed. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Oh, it makes. Trust me, I, I, I'm a journalist. I'm a radio show host, but I'm a, I'm an avid fan. So I still mm-hmm. look at I look at it from all three of those vantage points and uh, very strongly. So I totally understand well, yeah. what you're saying. You look at you look at I can take two people they have up there right now. Um, uh, and I'll go blank here. Uh, you know, and they had the shield, the three of them. Uh, Rollins is now Roman the champion. Roman Reigns and Ambrose. Okay, take those two. Who gets over with the public more? Uh, from a Ambrose. natural standpoint, Ambrose. Yes. Yeah. And what is it? And they push the other kid. He's got the look. He's got everything. What don't the people buy with him? They feel <laughs> I, I like Reigns, but they I think people I do too. People as a whole feel that they're shoving him down our throats, and that's the reason why he you know wasn't over the beginning of the year. Okay. There's an old trick in wrestling, and John Cena. When I was in Chicago one night with him, he said, the people boo me out here. And he couldn't stand it. I said, John, why do they boo you? I don't know. They don't like me. I said, why don't they like you? I don't know. And I said, go in tonight and sell. Get the people feeling sorry for you. Yeah, absolutely. Fight, 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 and sell. And then come back. Well, he tried that, and he changed the people over from booing. He said, "Oh my God!" But then, then you see him now, and they don't—they don't do it. They don't. If you watch a WWE crowd, I mean, McMahon's—I mean, that's the NFL of wrestling. I mean, they've got a great production. They really got—they're only showing talent, so nobody knows anything any different. Uh, I mean, it's very professionally run, and it's big time, and it's huge. But They've lost the emotion in professional wrestling. Why I think mean, it's great. The only kid, the only kid that really got emotion up there was uh, uh, um, Bryant. Yep, Daniel Bryant. Yep, Absolutely. Daniel Bryant, an underdog. People always want to cheer for the underdog. 
Man, Jim and I like love your been, <laughs> It seems like you've been listening. You you haven't, but I was, it seems like you've been listening to at least three fourths of my shows. I, I, I've said it's, it's so funny. You know? you know, a legendary mind like you is saying stuff like this because it because it's. It has not changed <laughs> in the generations. No. I mean, generation after generation, it has not. I call it the underdog it, pop. Is but see, they changed it. I mean, when we when we started wrestling in Japan, and when I went over there in 1975, it was it was it was you'd go into the arena, you'd get introduced, the people would clap, the match would start, and it was dead silent. Mm-hmm. Dead freaking silent. We're there for six weeks with Blackjack Mulligan, Moose Cholak, uh, Lars Anderson, Dale Lewis. They were the four big American stars. They're getting all the money, and Bruggers and I were getting like fifteen hundred dollars a week. And every every night you had to go into the uh, into the arena and learn where your symbol was, and then your symbol where you were on the cards for a second, third match. You know, Bob and I are usually the first and second matches. And and I'm, I'm watching, and I'm going, God, this is the damnedest thing. I'm wrestling for 20 minutes, and, and the match ends, and then you get a little applaud, and that's it. You could hear a pin drop during the match. So we have one night, they, we come in there, and Brugger says, Bob says to me, I can't find my name up there. I said, well, here, look at me for a second, third day. You're not there. We looked up. He's in the main event against their hometown hero in a cage match. <laughs> This is our for we've only been in the business, you know, five, six months. And Bob says, I don't know what to do in a cage match. So I went over to Baba and I said, hey, would you mind if I went out and be his manager tonight to help Bob out in there? Okay, so I go out there. And they're wrestling, and again, it's dead silent. And uh, all of a sudden, Bob was over by my corner, and I said something to him. And... And I reached down and handed him something I found on the floor, and I said, hit him right over the eye. And Bob did, and he busted the eye open. All of a sudden, you hear the people. I'm going, God. And I remember learning from Bobby Heenan, keep moving, keep moving. So I'm walking back and forth, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see this little Japanese guy jump over the fence and come at me, and I turn around and I gave him a kick in the ass, and over the fence he went. And uh, about 30 seconds later, a whiskey bottle goes flying by my head. And I'm going, oh, Jesus, what's going on here? So match ends. Bob gets beat. I climb over the, the cage. Fan throws a chair over the top of the cage. I happened to look up, and it caught me right above the eye and cut me open. And I saw this little guy. So I grabbed the chair, and I ran up the top rope. And I'm standing up, and he's running, and I fired the chair, and I hit him right behind the head. 10,000 chairs started coming down. And Bob says, oh, my God, what are we going to do? So we ran, we tried to run through the crowd, and we had our arms up, and they're blasting off the chairs. We were black and blue from the elbow, from the wrist down to the elbow. And there's a balcony, and here comes Blackjack Mulligan. He comes out to help us, six foot six, 320 pounds. And I look up, and I see this little Japanese guy in the top, fires a chair down, hits Bob right on top of the head, uh, hits uh, Blackjack on top of the head, and down he goes. We have to drag him back in the locker room. We get back in the locker room, a full-fledged riot starts. They're throwing rocks through the windows, police, there's tear gas out there and everything. The next two and a half weeks, Bob and I have to be escorted to the 
to the matches. Uh, we got in, if we went out to eat, we got in about three or four different fights. Uh, we were in the paper every day. And when you'd go into the arena, it was unbelievable noise. <laughs> they weren't quiet anymore. Yeah. So, again, it goes back to emotion. If you can get the emotion from the people into you, either as a bad guy or a good guy, you're going to make money, and you're going to, those people want to come back and see you. And yep. to me, that's what they've lost. They've created all these characters. Uh, it started in Japan where, where nobody sold. They just back and forth, back and forth, so the people didn't get into the match. You know, they're just being entertained. And today, mm-hmm. to me, when you watch wrestling, it's, it's a high-tech, real-body uh, video game. Yep. I usually you know, call it a. I call every match, and I've said this before on my show. I call every match a blank canvas, and the, yeah. the wrestlers have the brushes, and we're and they and we are looking at a live masterpiece. We should look at a live masterpiece mm-hmm. every single match, and I, and I've said that before. And a lot of times they just you know throw some blotches on there and, and pretend that they're several Del Dolly, but they're not, and it just looks awful. Yeah. But by the time the painting's it over, does. so. Yeah, so. it is. I mean, Absolutely. that was that was the way we were taught. You know, paint the picture for the public. Mm-hmm. You have to paint the picture. It's like a movie. You tell the story. You have to tell a story in the ring. There's Absolutely. very few stories anymore. It's just Bing, 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 Bing. And these big, tremendous bumps. I mean, they're they're great athletes. Uh, you know, putting their bodies on the line every night. But nobody, nobody wrestles. And and when they go back to TV. For a second, they say the, uh, the attention span of the American public is eight seconds, so they don't want them clicking the clicking the thing. I would love to be back, thirty two, thirty three years old, and be able to go in uh, in a pay per view right now, either in a tag team or a single match, and have a have a real good good team like a uh, like team of Orton and. Uh, um, Who's another one of their good stars up there? That's a uh, uh, Ambrose. Put the two of them together and go against Jim and I in an old classic match, and I bet we would tear that that freaking place apart. I know oh, yeah. we would. And yeah, that's love it, man. But they don't. Absolutely. They don't. They don't give them. They don't give them the time to tell the story. It, it, I agree. It's all a big production. You know, it's a video game with live bodies. And that's why, the, and that's why the the matches are so much smaller. And you know, it's like, you know, you're 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 feeding the the audience so much of this quick stuff that they don't appreciate the story building anymore. You know, and and that's well, they what, don't they don't get into the characters then. Exactly. They don't. There's exactly. no emotion. There's no emotion. Yep. So, you know, all they're doing is being entertained. It, it, it's the emotion that drives the people to buy the tickets. I mean, they don't. I mean, they, I, well, I'm, I'm saying that McMahon saying, "Well, you're out of your freaking mind." I mean, uh, we're selling out. Look, we're doing record numbers at WrestleMania. Well, when they get in the pay-per-views, I think the matches. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of their pay-per-views, but they're a little bit better, a little bit longer. Uh, but I was sitting there one night with McMahon before I was a, supposed to be a writer, and that one blew me away. I just couldn't do that, and. We're watching Shawn Michaels and somebody, and Shawn had worked with us quite a bit. I, in fact, I found 
a tape of him and and this morning Janetti they wanted to come up and I said boy here's here's two young kids we can put together and have a heck of a team here and Sean worked with us quite a bit and Sean was wrestling somebody I can't remember who it was that night and they were having kind of an old-fashioned match and the people were going nuts and Vince said why can't everybody that? I said, well, Vince, I'm watching your matches. The guys aren't being trained right. Not trained, they don't know how to do that. Well, can you do that? And I said, sure, I can do it. And that's how I ended up going to Louisville and Atlanta and doing their training for them. But wow. he says that's what he wants. But when I talked to like Jim about that, he says he doesn't really want that because they used to come in the locker room to us and say, hey, all action, keep the action going. So, you know, it's it's like a John Wayne movie. Yeah. You know, he was always the hero and he got his ass kicked for a while. And then he always had those those big comebacks and kicked the crap out of everybody. You know, absolutely. Very well said. That's what it's all about. Two more things real quick. Um, (laughs) Why was Greg Greg Gagne never the AWA world champ? Well, I just so Dennis Sogart wanted me to be that that one night in Milwaukee, and you know, and, and then I was wrestling Dick the following week in Minneapolis, and you know, Nick could have got the title back there and then gone to Japan with it, but Fern thought it would it would screw up his deal with Bubba, and wouldn't do it. But um, you know, I think if I'd have been ten or fifteen pounds uh, heavier, I mean, uh, I had a lot of my peers say that I should have been. I never asked for it. Uh, I was never offered it. Uh, I think they thought that people wouldn't maybe wouldn't buy it because of my size. Uh, I don't know. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't think Vern felt that, you know, he, everybody would be, uh, thinking that he's just pushing the kid. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I never wanted that, you know, everybody. So you're following your dad's footsteps. I said, I'm not, I'm following his career. I'm going to create my own footsteps and do it my way. Yeah. And that's what I always tried to do. But, you know, that there's always, you're never going to get away from that. There's always going to be people out there, oh, that's Fern's kid, you know. And, uh, you know. So maybe that was why. Maybe they thought it would uh, it would hurt by me doing that. I don't know. Like I say, if I'd have been 220, 225, Bachwinkle said I'd have, Probably been one of the better ones they ever had. But, yeah. Um, Would have been so, interesting, you know. At least see, you know, at least see one run, you know, um, mm-hmm. with you being champ. And then, and then, lastly, um, you know, I was going to ask you about, you know, why the demise of the AWA. I think we kind of touched on that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's just, I know that you. Well, uh, you just couldn't. Yeah, watched, you couldn't keep up with it. Yeah. McMahon was yeah. taking your talent. He was buying your tent. You know, uh, San Francisco, it took us three years to build our ratings up there. And finally, we had just built it up, had the, a big gate. We had the place sold out. And six be- weeks before we go in there, uh, uh, we got in a bidding contest with the station. We were on there bartering the time. And he calls my dad and he says, hey, you know, uh, McMahon just stopped me 2500 a week to put his tape in here. Uh, so you're off, and Vern said, "Well, it'll take." He said, well, "Give me three grand, you're on." So gave him the three grand, and then, you know, a couple of days later, he said, uh, "Ah, it's 
going to cost you four grand. And then it got up to five. And then we decided to pay the five because we knew we had this place sold out. And we found out, we got there, they had put McMahon's TV in there. Taking ours off, didn't even tell us. Oh, wow. McMahon just, McMahon came into, uh, according to our, our station director here in Minneapolis, who was uh, a good friend of ours, his, his father and my father, uh, you know, they were the two that put wrestling on initially here in Minneapolis. And then his son took over and they were good friends of ours and Stu Schwartz. And he said, Vince came in with a briefcase, 250 grand said here, I want to, I want to buy the TV slot. So he was, he was going around, you know, and I get a kick when I worked up there one night, we're on the plane and Kevin Dunn says, you know, Vince never wanted to put anybody out of business. And I know I'm not, I'm not going to swear, but you can fill in the blanks. I said, are you blanking kidding me? I said, if he wanted to compete, then come in with your own talent and get your own, get your own TV show on another network. But when he comes into San Francisco and Minneapolis and Denver with a potload of money and first takes your top talent and then he wants to take your TV time slot away, he looked more like the AWA than we did. You know, we're trying to get, we're getting all these new guys coming in and, and guys that had wrestled in other parts of the country that weren't established. We're trying to establish them. And to get somebody established on TV usually takes you two or three months. And by that time, McMahon's got his TV show in your TV slot, which you built up, which Chris at one time in the AWA and most of our major cities um, our TV ratings were a 24 rating with a 65 share of the audience. Mm. That's impressive. I mean, that's what they get at the Super Bowl. Yeah. And that was that was in Winnipeg, Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Denver. You know, it took us a while in those new areas that we started in Salt Lake and in Phoenix. And like I say, it took us three years in San Francisco to get that rating up where, you know, people are now hooked into the all-star wrestling and all of a sudden McMahon slips his tape in there. And now he's got Hulk Hogan and he's got Jesse Ventura. He's got Bobby Gene Okerlund. Uh, yeah. Bobby Heenan. Bobby is the only one that ever came to burn and, and fulfilled his commitments before he left. Hmm. Everybody else, everybody else like Ventura, they cut all their interviews. You know, we had to cut them. Like in Winnipeg, we had to do a whole month when we were up there uh, for the for the next match. And Jesse would cut all of them and then not show up for the match and go to Vince. That's that's just so you know they just well what they did is they just they they ruined the credibility of the AWA and they they became they looked more like the AWA than we did. So it it, it got very tough, and then we had to continually bring in new talent, young talent, try to get them ready and push them quicker than they were ready to be pushed. And it made it very difficult, very difficult. It was, it was tough, you know, um, you know, McMahon's a, he's a smart businessman. I'll give him credit for that. Uh, him and his daughter and, and, uh, triple H, they're doing a phenomenal job. I mean, they made, they put wrestling on the map all over the world. They're making a ton of money. And um, I have no, uh, you know, we had bad feelings for a long time, but I have 
no bad feelings anymore. Um, they've 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 created a, an empire there, and they've done a great job doing it. And they've got great people, strong people running it. Uh, I just I, I wish we could turn back the clock a little bit. When you see a couple of matches now where guys start to sell a little bit, you can feel the people get into it, but they won't. They won't. They don't. The kids don't know how to do it, or the talent doesn't know how to do it to really keep those people. You know, here I, I tell you just a quick one, and I know you got to get going. We're wrestling cold match. Denver was a good town for Jim and I. We're, they bring in uh, Patterson and Stevens had been out for a while. They brought him in at a cold match with Bobby as their manager in a title match in Denver. We get there. The place is sold out. For eight minutes, they had a top wrist lock on us. We fought out of it. They would either pull our hair or our trunks. There was never a punch thrown. And we had a full-fledged riot in eight-minute mark. That's emotion. Yeah, absolutely it is. You know, the people feel for you. They want to help you. You're the underdog, and the interesting part of that is, it's it, it's it's just you know this this conversation is just so full circle because we're seeing that because you mentioned Roman Reigns and you mentioned the reason why he you know he he wasn't over it and this whole year has seen this this the the nine almost ten months in this year we've seen that and he won the Royal Rumble mm-hmm. and was, you know booed out the arena in Pittsburgh yeah. and you know the even even help with the Rock coming didn't help. Uh, and mm-hmm. just throughout throughout the throughout the the months, you know, going against Daniel Bryan, being that underdog against Brock Lesnar, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. some Bray Wyatt feuds, people are actually cheering Roman Reigns now. And it's so interesting mm-hmm. that you said that that as far as selling and being that underdog and just the emotional pull to it, it was just kind of robotic the way that they were pushing him at first. But mm-hmm. now there's actually character and there's natural ability forming mm-hmm. in him, and that's mm-hmm. it's a tried and true, you know, tactics. It's tri- tried and true stri- strategy. It's, it's something that will never, that will never, you know, be extinguished. It, it will still have that emotional feel. The people are are, are into the the, the I call, again I call it the underdog pop. There's 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 mm-hmm. I always say this. I say there's that's two. There's two things. There's there's two types of characters that will always get uh, uh, intriguing pops. I, I say the underdog and the uh, and and the mystique. Uh, you know, you have the mm-hmm. the people like the 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 Hogans who who played the underdog for a lot of time against the uh, the, the Andres and the Earthquakes and the mm-hmm. Bundys and things like that. You have the underdog pop. Same with Daniel Bryan, and then you have the Mystique. People like the Stings and the Undertakers, who have who are the anomaly. You know, those are the, mm-hmm. the type of people who have that those type of pops, and and, and that that will never go away. <laughs> That's the reason why Roman Reigns is starting to get cheered more. So you're absolutely right. Well, it, it, again, he was pretty green when they stuck him in there, pushing him at that. Uh, it right. takes a while to get that feel, and you have to you have to learn how to control the crowd. You know, there's a lot of psychology to it. And when we wrestled Tito and, uh, and uh, Rick Martel in uh, San Francisco and the Cow Palace was tough, you know, in a, in, a, in a baby face match. I mean, the minute we walk out of the locker room, they're going before the match, you start boring, boring, you know, in the BS, BS, and you're hearing all that. And Jim and I were the champions. And, 
we struggled with Tito and Rick for 18 minutes where they had control on us. And we were in and out and, you know, leapfrogs and monkey flips and drop kicks, and they would get the hold back on us. At 18 minutes, we had the people standing. And once we got them there, we took them on a roller coaster ride for about another 18 or 20 minutes. And when we got back in the locker room, Ray Stevens, Nick Bockwinkle, Vern was the first one that pulled us aside, and Vern... I think I got, I think there was four times in my life that I got um, uh, a compliment from him. He took us aside and he said, boys, that was the greatest tag team match I've ever seen. He said, you guys took those people that were booing and they were screaming. They were boring, boring. And we watched them. You had them on their seats. You had them standing. You brought them up. You took them down. There was so much emotion in that. And and when we got done, it was a standing ovation for both teams. I mean, it was unbelievable. But mm-hmm. that's just from experience and knowing how to, you know, get the people. I mean, we were the champions. But we ended up, you know, they want to see the champions get beat. 18 minutes, they were cheering for us to get out of the holds. You know, you know, so Rick and Tito said, you guys, you, you, you turn them in your favor. (laughs) That's just, that was just the art of it that we learned from Vern on how to do that. They've got a couple of kids down uh, at the WWE and they've got one down there. You remember remember a guy named Alex Riley? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, he's a good. My his father was my roommate in college. We played football together, and he wanted to get into wrestling, and I set him up there with him. This kid's got so much talent, and I've told him, and I don't know what it is. Somebody up there doesn't like him, and I told him one day, I, I watched your match. I said, come to Minneapolis, tell him you can need a two week vacation, get in the ring with me for two weeks, a couple hours a day. I'll guarantee you, I'll teach you how to go in there and get yourself established with the people. That's what these kids don't know. They don't know how to establish themselves as either a bad guy or a good guy. You know, and and, uh, little things you can do. Absolutely. Well said, Greg. I bored you enough. I'm sorry. No, absolutely, man. I I get on my tangents. No man, we're streaming. We're streaming live here, and uh, and uh, I've got a flood of comments of, of people enjoying uh, your your rich stories. Um, mm-hmm. So one one more question, uh, real quick. Yep. Eric Bischoff, I uh, mm-hmm. uh, listened to the uh, the legends of uh, the the legends with JBL. Uh, interview that he had uh, last week with Eric Bischoff, and he Eric shared a lot of stories and it mentioned your name. Um, mm-hmm. As far as good uh, or bad, being very uh, well, he well he said that you were instrumental with uh, with bringing him uh, to to his spot in AWA, um, and it was he he shared a story about uh, I mean I've heard this before as far as you know him being just kind of you know in his office and being you know just last minute pulled up you know, as an as an announcer mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah, um, and and uh, if I'm not mistaken, you. Um, you went to work with Eric uh, for a little bit in WCW, right? Mm-hmm. I got Eric the job down there. 
Oh, okay. He was he, he was he was struggling here and and uh, Jim, what was Jim's name that ran the thing down there? Not Jim Barnett, but the uh, guy from St. Louis. Yeah, Jim Heard. They'd, he'd come and wanted to partner up with us at the AWA, right? And he came and had me with my dad, and he he was so far off on what uh, he wanted. To, he, he hit my dad with this one. He said, "Here's what I need. I need to find a hunchback midget that you can't pin him because he's a hunchback." My dad and I looked at him. We thought he was kidding. And this is his perception of wrestling, which is so far from what, you know, my father uh, perceived and I did. And then we we went on and on. And and, uh, uh, he went back and we couldn't get anything worked out with him. And then he called me one day. He said, Greg, here's what I'm willing to do. He said, "Um, I want you to go in to your station there and put our tape on in place of yours. And for that, I'll pay you a hundred grand and then you can come down and work here. And I went dead silent. And I said, I had some choice words for him and told him what I thought of him. And how could you even think I would do that to my father? You know, go blank yourself. And uh, that was my end of the conversation with him. And then Eric Bischoff said, you know, things are getting bad here. And uh, could you help me get into um, uh, Turner Broadcasting? So I called down there. I talked to Jim Barnett. And I said, you know, this Bischoff piece, he's got some possibilities of being a good announcer. Um, could you use him? Could you bring him down there? It'd be a big favor to both Vernon and I if you did it. And they did. That's how he got his job down there. And then Bill Watts actually brought me in, hired me. They were giving Dusty a, uh, a break from booking. And Bill Bill had got his education in, into booking and running a territory from Vern. He was, they were very close. And Bill said, Greg, here's the problem we have. I've got these guys that are booking for me that are all used to booking these weekly cards. He said, on the pay-per-views, we can't do that. He said, tell me how you would do it. And I said, well, Bill, the way we were going to do it is you run your your monthly, your month, instead of your monthly big arenas, you run your monthly big pay-per-view and you build your TV show so that pay-per-view. He said, well, I'm giving Dusty some time off. Can you, nobody can see past a week here. He said, can you book a year for me? So I went back home and came back, but... Uh, day and a half later, and I said, here it is. I laid out the whole year for him in pay-per-views and TVs. And he laid it out in front of his people and said, this is how you do it, guys. This is what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. And and I'm down there, and I had a, a contract that was based on, I hadn't signed it yet. It was a salary plus I bonus, bonuses for pay-per-views, uh, 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 getting paid on the TV ratings coming up. And I'm down there a week, and we're and we hear that there's an executive producer job available. And I said to Bill, I said, Bill, should I go to should I go down there and apply for that? He said, No, I run this thing. You know, executive producer is nothing. I said, Well, who's down there? And he said, Well, you've got um, Tony Schiavone, uh, David Crockett, Joe, somebody. Heavy Joe that had a TV show down in Atlanta. 
Petticino, does that sound right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, GWI. And, yep. and then and then uh, Eric Bischoff. I said Eric, and Eric had called me about a week a week before this happened, and he said, "Hey, how do how do we compete with McMahon down here?" So I laid out the whole thing for him how you had to do it, what you had to do with your TV, and what you had to do with your talent. And he took it to Bill Shaw, and he ended up getting the job. <laughs> All of a sudden, Bill Watts comes into us one night, and he says, "Hey." I got fired. Bischoff's your new boss. And I said, well, you got to be kidding me. So anyhow, there's there's more to that story, and I know you're probably out of time there, and you don't want to hear any more. Uh, wrong. But I could go on. <laughs> yeah, we are on a time crunch, but you're wrong. absolutely wrong. This is it, this needs to be a, it needs to be a part two. I'm sure a lot of people uh, <laughs> agree with that. But, okay, well, we'll uh, leave it for part. We'll leave it for part two. Yeah, I, I, no, think, I think we'll make that official. Yeah, I mean Eric, you know, he got himself in a position there, and then uh, and he ran with it, and he stepped on a lot of toes uh, doing it uh, as things. That's the way they are in the corporate world, and um, um, there was some hard feelings for a while, but you know, I'm over that, and I guess he's got this video coming out with the D, uh, with the with the New York group the WWE and he sent me an email last night and asked if I'd be be on it. So I'll have to think about that one. I'll be on it, but I don't know. <laughs> I, can, I can make him look good and I can make him look really bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. You got which one I want to do. I'll make you look good. What do you want my friend for me? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You want the, well, you want the it, truth it, of what went down, or <laughs> right? Do you, do you, oh, you want the, the the real stuff? <laughs> I could tell you the real stuff about WCW and how he screwed that up, but uh, anyhow, part that's, two. Uh, that's, that's, that's part two. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. So yes. We'll leave the people hanging. It, yes, there's your cliffhanger right there. Absolutely, we're leaving them right there. So that's the emotion. All those people listening yep. out there, there it is. You won't there believe you what happened to the WCW or the what was it? WCW. WCW. But I've got yeah. the all inside scoop, and I'll tell you how it was laid out down the road. <laughs> that is fantastic. See, you are you still got the emotion. You you still got the cliffhangers. You still got it all right there in your mind, right there. Absolutely. Part two. We're hanging on to that. Uh, one. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. This, yeah. There's, there's no doubt that there's going to be a part two. So you know, we'll talk and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll inform all, all the fans and the listeners uh, when we're going to do it. But we're, we're going to do it because we got a lot of stuff to talk about. So it's, it's, it's been a pleasure for part one. Thank you so much. Well, good. And, uh, hey, yeah. hey, Kristen, thank you. And again, I apologize for the the late call. I mean, God, okay. I, I marked it down. I had it all written down. I had my phone going, and I put my phone on the charger so I could have it all charged up. And then I fell asleep. Yeah, that's happens. what happens when you get old. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I uh, I, I have a, a a bit of a time before I get there, um, but uh, I, I appreciate just uh, soaking in and the richness of of your storytelling here, and I, I really appreciate it. So, uh, well, I hope, it was, I hope it was good for you. Absolutely, I'll give you a call and we'll we'll get part two uh, uh, rolling and scheduled. Good enough. I hope it went all right for you, and thanks again for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank, thank, thank you so much. Have a good night. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks.
You are now listening to the Pancakes and Power Slam Show by Crave Wrestling on Blog Talk Radio. Be sure to follow Crave Wrestling on Twitter at Crave Wrestling and join the Facebook fan page, Crave Wrestling. Wow, wow, wow. This has been a this has been a show that's been going on for three and a half years now. And we've had some fantastic interviews. But I don't know. I don't know, Derek. I don't know, Ryan. It's, uh I don't know if there's any I don't know if there's any better than that one. Derek, what do you think? This will break the internet, Chris. I mean, absolutely. Greg Gagne, a legend in wrestling, AWA, Pancakes and Power Slams. We've got proof in the blog. We've got proof in the chat room. We've got proof proof on the radio, blog talk radio. This is where it's at. And part two, I mean, I I could sit here up all night and just continue to listen to Greg. And we see him in commentaries on DVDs. And if you watch the old the footage of AWA, I mean, he was here tonight. And that's it. That's the last thing you have to remember about Greg Ghani. He was in Pancakes and Power Slams tonight. Absolutely. Ryan. Yeah, we needed one of those um, eight-hour RF, RF video shoot interviews. Right. <laughs> I mean, we could have went on all night, man. It's just the fact we're on after 1230 Eastern is awesome. Exactly. Very, very well said uh, to the both of you. All right, we only got a few minutes. Uh, just real quick, we're going to spend just a good uh, 20 seconds apiece on uh, takeaways on Raw. Ryan, what do you got? Uh, it started off cool for me with the New Day and uh, Cena and the Dudleys, but um, after that, I wasn't much into it. And uh, what's going on with uh, No Social SmackDown with the Titantron not working mm-hmm. in the arena? Yeah, that was that was oh. interesting. <laughs> Derek, takeaways, what you got? Hey, takeaway, uh, open challenge, Xavier Woods, that was great. It was fun for the New Day. However, my biggest disappointment last night was how fast the Demon Kane came out of the ambulance. It would have yeah. been different if, you know, Kane was they injured and that. he would have came back later in Raw. If he would have came yeah. back a couple hours later. But they had to do it right away. That killed mm-hmm. it. I'm done with the single. stupid. And that was a huge disappointment. Raw was devastating last night. Yeah, I think that was a, I think that's a really good point uh, because they could have milked that a lot better if they really want to do the split thing and then the, the the whole selling the leg injury. Like if they did that, I have no idea why he sold the leg injury and then did a stop and it was all done. That was just horrible <laughs> acting. It was it was absolutely ridiculous. I'm like, why are you? You're supposed to be invincible. You're supposed to be this demon cane. Why are you even selling? an injury or even feigning like you're selling an injury. Just that doesn't make any sense at all. Flavor of the week, uh, me, Derek, and Ryan are going to let you know our favorite uh, design of title design of all time. Here we go. It is now time for the flavor of the week. Derek, what was your favorite what is your favorite world title design of all time? My favorite title design would have to be the one um, 
early 90s, early mid 90s. I think uh, Shawn Michaels was the last one to have it with a little eagle, the world champion, mm-hmm. WWE eagle, world yeah. champion. That was yeah. my absolute favorite. I love the United States champion when it was like the United States outline. That was cool, classic, had the green leather behind it, but absolutely the uh, WWE Eagle heavyweight. Yeah. Ryan, what's your favorite design of all time? Uh, To follow up on his wing belt, mine is the Attitude Era belt, I guess you could call it the one from uh, 98 to 02. That and the Undisputed, the one, the Rufus Aggression one. Um, Mm Yeah. I don't know. It's one of those two are my best, but by far both are pretty awesome. I, I may, I may have to go Attitude Era uh, mm. if you made me choose. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna say uh, other than I think the best, I think the best belt of all time is the Big Gold Belt. I think that's that's that that's without. Uh, to me, that, that that goes without saying. But I would say as far as, as exclusively WWE, my favorite is certainly the Attitude Era uh, championship uh, that uh, Austin and Rock um, and Triple H had, um, the one that Mick Foley held up when he won. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I certainly think that that was, to me, and I still have that title, actually. It's actually in the back of my truck. Uh, I still carry it around every now and then. On, I used to do it on every pay per view, but now I just do it on probably you know twice a year or so I, when I hang out with some friends and, and, and watch the pay per view. So, ladies and gentlemen, we will get a part two of Greg Gagne. <laughs> Stay tuned to the Pancakes and Power Slam show uh, show next week, and we'll we'll get more into uh, let you know about part two. But uh, it will be coming up, and uh, what a fantastic interview by by Greg Gagne. Couldn't have asked for any better. Uh, until next week, we actually had an overrun this week. First time ever in Pancakes Power Slam's history. Overrun. So until next week, enjoy your week of wrestling, uh, and God bless. Good night. Bye-bye. <laughs>